Oh my gosh, Dan, you're back. Uh, how was your big trip to the United Kingdom? Fine. Okay. Uh, I know you traveled all over the UK, uh, saw some family, even got to see a Liverpool football game. Uh, that must have been exciting. Uh, yeah, it was okay. Really? Just okay? Adam, is it me or does Dan seem, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, miffed? Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting a miffed vibe. I think he's miffed. Dan, like, what's up, buddy? What's got you so, like, miffed? Okay. You know, I promised I wouldn't get into this, but I'm a bit miffed about the guest host you had while I was away. Julius Simone Rutgers? I thought she did a great job. She filled in for you. She was funny. She was smart. And, it, and that was the problem. She was perfect. I mean, she's not only a great journalist, she's also a musician and a visual artist and a poet, and she even knows how to ride a bloody horse. And I believe her exact quote was, I think I'm a way better Lone Ranger than Dan. Dan, that was, that was just part of a funny bit that we did at the start. I'm sure she didn't really mean that. Oh, no? When I listened to the podcast, it made me feel, I don't know, dispensable? It's sort of like being in a band and having someone sit in for you on a gig because you're away and the band goes out and gets Mick Jagger. Oh, come on, man. I mean, Dan, you're still the Lone Ranger to me. People can fill in for you, but nobody can replace you. Uh, But given that we had such a great response to the episode with Julia Simone, I I, I do have one piece of advice. Uh, What's that? I would never go on holiday again, ever. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. And yes, yes I'm back. I'm back in my seat. Welcome back. (laughs) You and, are uh, loved, you are loved, you I, are loved. I am. And you know what? And Julia Simone, w- w- she was great. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it, it's actually comforting to know that it, should either one of us suffer a mishap on the way to the studio or have to leave the country, as we both do, that there are, we, have, we have tons of bench strength at the Free Press, although... I do want to set the record straight. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> this is he's been about talking a to things. me all week about this. Yeah, here we go. Okay, so, you know, Julia Simone who's originally from Calgary and she uh, she played up her her cred, her, her Calgary cred. Her Calgary cred, which is totally authentic, you know, familiar with horses, familiar with the uh, Calgary Stampede. I worked for 5 months for the Calgary Herald, covered the Stampede, okay, in all of its glory, and I and do know my way around a horse. I can ride a horse. So I just want to get that out of the way. I'm so and, glad that the record has been <laughs> corrected. And, and of this, we shall never speak of again. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah. I want to test this horse theory one day. Sure. We're, we're going we're gonna to test you to see if you can find your way around a barn. Yeah. Well, I, I know enough to know not to spend a lot of time around the back end of a horse <laughs> for a variety of different reasons. I, I don't know much about horses, but I did deliver lambs one summer. And uh, that's about as farmy as I get. Okay, so I know enough about horses to know that's not the same thing at all. No, anyways, it isn't the same thing at all. No. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's, I'm glad that you're back. Thanks. And uh, we, you know, you're back smack dab in the middle of uh, Manitoba politics here as we see the latest Angus Reid poll 
uh, has just come out yeah. for premier approvals. And I think the Conservatives here in Manitoba expected a bump, as most governments do when there's a budget, especially a pre-election budget that's very friendly and full of a bunch of things that they're hoping to get support on. And didn't quite happen that way. No. Uh, so the timing of the poll might be a little too tight to say that this is 100% captures the impact of the budget. But they started uh, two days uh, last week, two days before the budget was delivered in Manitoba, and then went for a week. Uh, so they would have gone till Monday of this week. So they, they did capture uh, all of last week and last weekend. And her approval rating fell one point to 25%. More importantly, 65% of those Manitobans polled uh, disapprove of her performance, which is uh, probably more a concern than the support number. Because, you know, when it gets right down to it, like every leader of every party, only like, you know, if you have a third of the people in the province that like the job you're doing, those are your core supporters. It's not actually a bad number. But where you, where, you know, if that's all you've got, th- then you're in trouble. Because, I mean, no party can win an election, a majority mandate in an election in Manitoba, without drawing some uh, non-traditional voters. O- over, and that just doesn't seem to be happening. And not in a two-party system, which generally is Manitoba. Not to downplay the Liberals, of course. And it's just more like uh, having only 25% of support in the province in a two-party system is means the other party got a lot of support. Yeah, the, you know, it's, and, and particularly in Winnipeg, and this is going to make a nice dovetail to the other issue that we want to discuss today, which is, um, you know, the, the way uh, the Manitoba government, uh, the progressive conservative government has sort of boxed itself into a corner on the issue of uh, supervised consumption sites for those people suffering from uh, addictions. Um, you know, like the, the spread between NDP support and Tory support in Winnipeg is so profound. Like it's, it's, it's edging towards a 30-point spread, which is unprecedented. So you see in the budget efforts that the government has made to reintroduce themselves, reframe the, the relationship with people in Winnipeg, tons of tax cuts, uh, tons of spending. Uh, really overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, it's quite surprising about a tax cuts. Yeah. I mean, even in a pre-budget conservative go- a government, you know, you, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised when I see such tax cuts and checks sent out to people throughout the province. Uh, it's just, it, it just seems like such a, a move after getting the healthcare dollars and making the argument to the feds that we're in dire need of money suddenly tax cuts come in and money's being mailed out to Manitobans. Yeah, I, I think the worst part about the budget, you know, and this is the, the, the Tories, this will go down as the uh, air quotes, historic, which was uh, the word that um, Premier Stephenson and Finance Minister Cliff Collins said a gazillion times. That's a rough estimate, gazillion. It could have been more or less. But, <laughs> and, uh, but you know, like it was every, every sentence was peppered with historic. And, you know, the problem is that, you know, it's a completely, like it's a, in, in general, it's a fallacious way to frame, you know, because like if you spend $1 more than you spent the year before, you can ca- call that a historic investment in XYZ service. The fact is that, you know, whatever they're spending, uh, is really, I'm not sure 
and this is the problem, I'm not sure anybody can spend enough money now to make up for all the damage that was done when they were spending, like, you know, they were, funding increases were well beyond, below the uh, uh, inflation and the impact of, of population growth. So, you know what, uh, you know, I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think they really, I don't think they bought any love in this point. Uh, and I think that probably what's happened is there's, it's it, it, the bad stories, as we've seen the stories that have come out, especially around the supervised consumption sites uh, and the, the, the disastrous way that these, uh, I think generally Manitobans have been seen, you know, tax cuts should be seen as highly, uh, something people like, you know, yeah. highly enjoy, enjoyed by Manitobans, but generally has been negatively responded to. Uh, but I mean, time will tell. But there's some really good things in this budget. There's money for uh, payroll tax exemption. There's the Community Economic Development Board. There's, you know, there's even a partnership with the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs for lending options. I mean, there's some really good things in this budget, things that have been a long time needed and coming. But yet, you haven't heard almost anything about that. No, and it's, you know, I, like speaking of, of polling, I mean, I would love to know what the internal government polling is telling them because as we also saw last week and into this week, government's starting to respond to things that I would not have expected them to respond to. So we mentioned the issue of, uh, of safe consumption sites for people suffering from addictions. And so this has been, for years and years and years, this has been the, um, the treatment option, the harm reduction option too far for this government. They don't believe in providing a safe and clean place for people to use drugs, even though uh, we're suffering through uh, uh, an overdose epidemic. Um, I mean, you know, literally, uh, every day that goes by that we don't have a safe consumption option for people suffering from addictions, another person will die. Every single day, at least, it's actually closer to 1.6 people dying every day. And, you know, so, okay, so the Tories and their core supporters, they don't believe in this. They don't, they don't think it's an option. And so for the most part, they've kind of ignored the issue. We've tried to get government data on overdoses. They hid the data. And then all of a sudden this week, this week that we're recording this, something strange happened. They blinked on the issue. And so the first thing is the government submitted an op-ed, a commentary written by uh, the uh, Minister of Mental Health. And she want like, so this was, you know, her longer form argument about why, um, you know, the government doesn't support uh, supervised consumption. And, you know, I mean, in it, it's like, it, it's, it's amazing. Like, it, it's, uh, um, like she talks about, you know, while this government believes in treatment, we don't believe in enabling people to take drugs. You yeah, know, it was a total say, tone shift. <clears throat> but they also introduced a piece of legislation that they claim opens the window to the creation of more um, safer supervised consumption sites. We only have one in Winnipeg right now. It's operated, uh, it's a mobile one, operated out of van by an uh, agency called Sunshine House. They're doing courageous work on their own. On their own, they went and got an exemption from the federal government to do this. On their own, they've gone out and, and got money to support the service because the province won't support it. So they introduce this legislation. They do the op-ed. So apart from the ins and outs of what this may or may not do for people suffering from addictions, they blinked. 
Like that is a that is a blink. That's a tell that this is suddenly they see this as an issue that's related to their lack of support in Winnipeg, and I'm kind of astounded. And I mean, we can only imagine. You know, just a few years ago, Brian Pallister getting that uh, report on safe consumption sites and throwing it on the floor <laughs> in the legislature. Yeah. I mean, now here we are talking about it, but. You know, the way that they've administratively set it up is they really don't have to worry about this unless they get reelected. Yeah, that sound you hear right now is an enormous controversial can being kicked down the road to somewhere in mid-2024 when who knows may, who may be in government in Manitoba. So, yeah. I mean, the, there's that, that the budget did appeal to certain communities. Like uh, one of the things that was... Uh, the attempt by the government to get support from is the lar- the l- very large urban young population. So there's $65 million going towards post-secondary institutions and they're capping tuition. I mean, who, which government are we talking about here? Yeah, my, <laughs> my head's spinning. Yeah, <laughs> Hold me. <laughs> and so, you know, the time will tell whether this budget does get support. I mean, the polling data and when it was taken maybe have indicated that mm. only partially uh, there would be people who would have known about the budget during the polling. But I still think that this government is in uh, really a difficult position going forward. We're only, uh, you know, we're a summer away from where people's attention draws away from the news. Uh, and people are starting to think more about their summer cottages and they're thinking about an election. And then, boom, you've only got a short amount of time, September, October, to gain people's attention. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think we have to leave open the possibility that she may uh, seek a, a, a writ of election earlier than October the 3rd, I think it is. Um, you know, like the, I think the, for the Tories, there may be a feeling that they've got the budget out. I mean, man, every day is jam-packed with announcements that come out of the budget Today, you know, support for seniors, uh, you know, treatment uh, for people suffering from addictions, mental health supports, uh, physician recruitment. I mean, like it's there may be a feeling that uh, it's better to leave these promises hanging in the air than leave it longer when, you know, the heads in the news media like me go out and find out that nothing like that what they promised they're either not doing or it's been ineffectual i mean reporters are so horrible that we'd way, like to know? apologize to all reporters for <laughs> dan lumping you all in with him yeah it, it, you know at one level or another political reporters all seek to be kind of a dickhead, right like it's <laughs> Like this is he, now turning into a, yeah. uh, 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 like a motto. Well, you, we all want to be respected, but you know, uh, if you're disliked, I mean, I suppose that's kind of a good thing. You know, like it's, I have a, I have a friend of mine who works in politics who says journalists should judge the, uh, the, their influence, their impact, not on the basis of the friends they make, but on the basis of the enemies that they make. So in that case, I am like the best journalist ever. I think, well, I, I, I'm always shocked by the number of contacts that you have in all parties across the province, which tells me that you're able to walk that line and uh, in the middle at many ways to both keep those relationships, but then also at times just speak the truth. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't, you have to be careful. I don't want this exactly to come across like some of my best friends are. But uh, you know what, like it's, if you do your job properly, and we have so many great journalists at the Free Press, then you have, you have, have agency with somebody in every party, like someone who will pick up the phone 
and tell you what's going on, even if, parenthetically, he slips in his disappointment about the Premier continuing to ignore the request to appear on this podcast, close parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, uh, you know, it's, it's a fascinating time in Manitoba politics. I, I will say this point, that if the Conservatives, the Progressive Conservatives go on to lose this election, it will not be because Heather uh, Stephenson did not try everything. Like I, I, no, I will throwing everything yeah. right now. Yeah, the, and I so I, I will give her a lot of credit. You know, if she she started with more political capital and a um, a clean slate, who knows kind of where we would be yeah, right I now. I think the the long specter of Brian Pallister, and if you watch the uh, the strategy of the NDP and almost every single speech of Wab Canoe, I mean, he evokes Brian Pallister's name as much, if not more so, than yeah. Heather Stephenson. Yeah. You actually won't hear Heather Stephenson's name. Uh, you'll hear Premier, and then you'll hear Brian Pallister uh, over and over and over again. Yeah. Because it's a winning strategy, I think, generally, that people feel very disfavorable. He left very, very disfavorably. Yeah. And I think people look at the healthcare system and they see Brian Pallister, they yeah. don't see Heather Stephenson. And, and among progressive conservatives, Mr. Pallister has achieved full Voldemort uh, status. <laughs> He is uh, the uh, the name. I don't think he's around to hear no. or listen to our podcast anyway. No, uh, although when I, I'm going to get that uh, global map, like of where people are listening, and I'm going to look for that little dot in Costa Rica. If there's a couple of dots in Costa Rica, then I, <laughs> I would betcha. Be shocked. I would be shocked. Okay. We're going to shift gears a little bit uh, to a topic that's kind of uh, very close to my heart, uh, wrongful convictions. Um, I, I kind of, as an investigative journalist, I kind of cut my teeth on wrongful convictions. Uh, David Milgard, I worked on that story quite a bit, and then also James Driscoll and others. And uh, recently, the federal government introduced um, legislation called the Joyce and David Milgard Act, to uh, which seeks to create an independent commission, finally, to review uh, cases of possible wrongful conviction. And after it was introduced about a week and a half ago, I reached out to um, Office of Justice Minister, Federal Justice Minister David Lametti, and he was good enough uh, to agree to join us for a conversation. So we're going to have that conversation, and then we're going to debrief on that interview with uh, Winnipeg uh, lawyer David Asper. Uh, my yeah. colleague at the University of Manitoba and the Robson Faculty yeah. of Law. And, one uh, of the, and the man who first approached me back in the late 80s, uh, to ask me if I wanted to go to Stony Mountain Penitentiary and meet his client, David Milgard, and talk most about... Most known yeah. about the, yeah. the advocacy on David Milgard's legal team. Uh, I mean, real icon in Manitoba, legal circles. And uh, so we're really lucky to be able to debrief a little bit uh, on the interview with David Lametti on uh, with David Asper. Absolutely. And so here we go, off to our interview with the Federal Justice Minister, David Lametti. I am uh, lucky today to be joined by David Lametti, who is the Minister of Justice uh, and the Attorney General of Canada, and uh, is also the author, with I'm sure many other people in this department, of a new piece of legislation for the creation of an independent commission to review cases of possible wrongful conviction. And Minister Lametti, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Thank you. Um, as we were discussing just briefly uh, before we started the recording, 
Um, the the uh, uh, myself in particular in the Winnipeg Free Press have a, a really deep connection to the stories of wrongful conviction. We were among the first uh, news organizations to report on the David Milgard case. We also um, got quite a bit of attention for the work we did in the James Driscoll case. So um, I, I can sort of say with, you know, no exaggeration that uh, right off the bat, I, I'm extremely uh, pleased at, at uh, you know, at, at first look and excited about the possibility of independent commission because it, it, Correct me if I'm wrong. This has really been a, a, like a thing that's decades in the making. Oh, absolutely. It's it's. Uh, I I believe I believe that every single or at least the vast majority of independent uh, ex post facto reviews, commission reviews, and that sort of thing, have recommended uh, a dis a a review mechanism that was independent of the Minister of Justice. And so uh, this is long overdue, and uh, I'm. Pleased to be uh, pleased to be the one pushing it forward. So, um, I'm again. I'm sure this was tucked into just about every briefing book that you ever received on uh, on uh, potential legislation and policy priorities. But what's the origin story for you? How did you decide to uh, to make it a priority? Because it has been, and again, I don't think this is an exaggeration or unfair. It's been an easily punted policy issue. Sort of, it, there's a lot of cans that have been kicked down a lot of roads on this one. What what's the origin story for you? How did you come to to sort of take this on? Well, you're. I think you're bang on. First of all, that that it has been uh, it has been a can that's been kicked down the road uh, far too many times. Um, and I actually I actually fought to get this in my mandate letter in 2019, and I fought to get it in my mandate letter in 2021. It wasn't in our party platform. Uh, so it's something that is uh, has been of great personal interest to me, and I guess it's a, a bit in my my legal DNA. I have, um, I, as, a, as an undergraduate, I followed, I mean, I obviously, you know, learned about Stephen Truscott in school, but then I, I followed uh, what happened with David Milgard and, and Guy Paul Morin and others. And um, by the time I got to law school, it was an issue. And, you know, Erwin Kotler was the professor who taught me constitutional law. And and when I got named a justice minister, Erwin took me aside in his usual fashion with his 15 points. And one of them was, David, you've got to get this done. But the other and, and probably the most personal point of contact for me is that I clerked for Peter Corey uh, at the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, Peter wrote the report of the wrongful conviction of Thomas Sofano. And he uh, he recommended uh, a, a um, uh, an independent commission uh, to to review these kinds of these kinds of potential miscarriages of justice. And I remember I I I'd long since stopped clerking for him, but we we stayed in touch and he did the report. And I remember he he handed me the report personally. He said, David, this is important. And so I took that. I take all of that baggage with me uh, as, you know, a former professor and, and, you know, again, a student and colleague of Erwin Kotler, but, but most of all, a mentee of Peter Corey. And, uh, and this had to be done. It's, it's long overdue. When I became minister, there was a case sitting on my desk and um, I, I got to it, I think expeditiously. And I've tried to do it expeditiously in the in the five cases that have come before me in the last four and a half years. 
But two things you've got to note as justice minister. First of all, I look at the files and say, wow, how did it take so long to get to my desk? And secondly, why only five cases uh, in four and a half years? Like there, there have to be so many more examples of, of this out there. There has to be a better way. Um, so the, the law has been, uh, I guess, unofficially, I believe it's unofficially dubbed the Joyce and David uh, Milgard law. And um, officially, you know, officially, okay, they're uh, officially. And well, the bill, uh, in any event, we'll see what the law ha- what happens with the law later. But the bill is definitely the the uh, the Joyce and David Milgard uh, bill. That is an observation yeah. I would expect the attorney general to make in our conversation. <laughs> so well played. Um, the uh, I, I was fortunate enough to know both of them quite well, uh, and to have grieved their passing. David's, uh, you know, just within the last year. Um, did, did they play a, a direct role, either one of them, before they passed in informing you or motivating you to introduce this bill? Uh, David, David definitely did. Obviously, I, I, I became minister after, uh, after Joyce's passing, but certainly regard her as a hero in all of this, um, uh, you know, as someone who, who just continually went to bat for her son and refused to refused to take no for an answer and refused or uh, rebutted anybody who who felt that he he was guilty and so um uh, thankfully for her david was released i met david in in uh, 2019 shortly after having been named minister of justice uh, with with james lockyer they were they came up to my office and uh, and again how could you not be impressed by someone who after having uh spent over two decades in prison for something he didn't do who turned his efforts to helping other people and 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 fixing this problem and so hard it was hard not to be um uh, i suppose uh, emotionally convinced by by david very persuasive and i i promised him that day um i promised him that day that i would get this done and uh so far, I'm keeping the promise. Um, it is. Uh, it has to be done step by step because we're creating something new, and I'm happy to go into the steps later. With, you know, with the with the, the commission that that uh, justices uh, Laforme and Westmore and Traoré did for us. But um, but I promised David, and and I, I cried when he died. Like I I just I still get emotional. I I wish he had been here for this, and I'm glad that that uh, Susan could join us and and with James Locke here the day that we made the announcement. Right. Um, Susan being Susan Milgard, who uh, has done just as much work as anybody in the Milgard family, really, to keep the fires on this issue burning. Um, You know, again, over the years uh, and all the writing that I've done on wrongful convictions, it's been quite clear to me that uh, none of your predecessors, and by that I mean justice ministers and attorneys general, have seen the political uh, margin <laughs> or value in engaging on this topic because it, it is a it's a thorny issue when you get into discussions with the provincial attorneys general. Um, you know they ultimately are the authors of the wrongful uh, prosecutions if that happens to be the issue. Um, you know they're responsible for policing in their jurisdictions and the role the police play in this. And quite frankly, uh, I think human nature being what, what it is, they don't like to have these things pointed out. Uh, and uh, they take, you know, the, the provincial attorneys general tend to be very adversarial. 
What discussions have you had with the provinces about this? And are they, do they remain um, concerned to perhaps adversarial about what you're trying to do? I, I, no, I'm not. I don't think so. Um, and maybe it's, maybe it's because this has taken so much time and maybe it's because we've seen so many cases and we continue to see cases. It's just, and I've tried to not certainly uh, cast blame anywhere. Mistakes happen, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's a, a police investigation that works, works to a hypothesis that, you know, perhaps actually ended up framing the the investigation in a way that it shouldn't have or whether it's a coroner's report that did the same thing or whether it was a crown or whether it was a it was a you know a mistake on the bench or, or something like that it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter how how we got there and i've tried not to cast blame um the the advantage i guess of the the political with a small p uh, advantage of of the laform uh, westmoreland trial report was that everybody could read it and and so we did after that after we got that report we did go back to provinces and territories we did we did get submissions from police association judges associations and, as well um to get their views on it and so the the report helped us in that dialogue with them uh to come up with you know, I think with a bill that I think has, to be honest, broad support. And so I'm not sensing, I'm not sensing resistance and I'm certainly not seeing any adver, uh, you know, any adversarial or outright hostility towards this. I, I think there's a general view that we've, we've had far too many of these cases in, in Canadian history. They continue to happen and we must do something. So it's, um, I, I think it's a fair observation that the, the system that we've had to date, um, which is uh, the the powers of the minister to review convictions after normal avenues of, of appeal have been exhausted, isn't contained within the criminal code. Um, there is a there is a department within your department, the convictions review group, that does a lot of the spade work, but that the the culture around the issue of, of wrongful convictions has been perhaps the biggest problem. Um, and and again, you know, I'll put some some uh, blame uh, on the on the provinces for this. Um, essentially, it has been by tradition, the provincial prosecution services have become an adversarial party to the wrongful conviction. Uh, they, uh, in many ways, trying to to try or retry the cases. Um, and, you know, I've personally written about uh, recent cases involving people like Devon Ross, where, you know, the, it took more than a decade uh, to work through your office. And um, one of the big reasons was the constant opposition and, and uh, obstruction, not maybe in a legal sense, but in a, in a more of a metaphorical sense uh, of the provincial uh, uh, pr prosecution services. Do you believe that along with the commission, we need a culture reboot on this? Uh, something that maybe where we can convince the provinces to be um, a little more interested in, in, in a fair and objective review of the cases and a little less automatically hackles up defending the original conviction? Well, I, I, that's a delicate question, obviously. And 
I would like, obviously, to bring everybody with us on this, including the provinces and territories, uh, including police and crowns and, and and judges associations. And again, I, my goal here not to cast dispersions, but you're you're right to say it takes too much time. You're absolutely right to say it takes too much time. Part of it is, I think, just the fact that and and the the criminal cases review group in in my ministry. I know they work hard, and I, and I know that they take all this seriously, but they have other jobs too, and. And so one of the things that an independent commission will do is just have more resources. And this will be the primary and, and really only focus of that of that body. And that's critically important. I think that will greatly enhance uh, the speed at which at which this might move through the system and that will help people. Um, but they'll also be able to move proactively um, uh, and and move in communities to make sure that people are aware. And we can we can we can jump more into this if you want uh, to make make sure that people are aware that that this possibility exists. But uh, honestly, I haven't seen I, prosecutors do their job, ground prosecutors do their job, defense defense lawyers do their job. I, I haven't seen bad faith here, but I, I'm I am definitely going to say that you're right to say this just takes way too much time and that's certainly one of the things that motivates me so uh, the issue of resources i think that um like i did talk to susan and david uh, and uh, uh james Locke here uh, after you announced the uh, the bill and and I, I i certainly think the issue of resources is top of mind for all the people who have fought for uh those uh, shown to be wrongly convicted um we don't you don't have a budget yet and and there aren't a lot of details on how support can flow and in what form um you know i know that um a lot of people who do work in this area are hoping that it's not you, you don't try to to run through provincial legal aid schemes which have been very problematic um so maybe let's talk about how quickly do you think that the the bill can be passed uh, we're uh, in kind of a dynamic political environment right now, um, and 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 then how quickly can we start to see some some details about resources? Well, first, just on passage, I'm pretty confident we can get this thing through uh, the House of Commons uh, expeditiously. Uh, hoping, you know, quite frankly, hoping by June. Um, the I've got support from the NDP. Uh, pretty sure I have support from the Bloc Québécois. Uh, Daniel Turp uh, is someone when he was in uh, when he was in the House of Commons with the Bloc Québécois who was in favor of this kind of commission. And I, I honestly, I honestly hope I can get uh, the Conservative Party as well to to join in, uh, or at least at least a, a substantial plurality. Nobody, nobody has any interest in wanting to keep innocent people in jail. I mean, what that doesn't do that that doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever except to de delegitimize uh, the, the criminal justice system as well as create unnecessary victims and prolong the agony of, of victims of, of crime. So we we will, um, I think we can get this through by June. I think there's good support. Um, in terms of the resources, that's my job to get those resources from the Minister of Finance, uh, and I'm I'm doing everything that I can uh, as we speak uh, to try to make sure that that happens. And I I I take the point from from Susan and from James, and from others, uh, Kent Roach, others that this that this absolutely has to has to be properly resourced, and I'm doing my best to make sure that that happens. 
So it's likely, let, let's, uh, let, let's assume that uh, this can get through by June, uh, which would be the, the spring session, spring to summer session of, of the uh, federal uh, legislature, and then there would be a break. So probably at earliest, we wouldn't see details about resources until the, the budget following the one that we're going to see later this month. I'm not certain because in addition to budget processes, there are off cycle requests and, and, and that sort of thing. So I can't, 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 uh, can't assume, I guess that it w it will be in the current budget, uh, but also can't, uh, can't rule it out, uh, but also can't rule out that there are other possibilities uh, down the road. Uh, getting it up and running will still take some time. There's absolutely no question about that. Uh, hiring processes are what they are um, and and putting together the architecture of it uh, and, and filling in the architecture of it, if you will, and 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 getting, there's also the tre the actual submission and then has to go through treasury board, all that stuff. But I, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to press and, and get this thing done as soon as possible. So uh, my next question, uh, I, I will admit is, um, uh, like it's it, it it touches on some pretty uh, big uh, sort of issues, but I'm wondering as well. One of the the pressure points or or concerns about the current system has been around uh, references uh, from your office um, uh, for reviews by appellate courts, and then the uh, the work that the appellate courts do. And I'm just wondering if you think. To a certain extent, uh, the the entirety of the justice system, but certainly those who will be working hand in hand with this new commission to review, that we we might need to brush up uh, a little bit on uh, the jurisprudence in this area, uh, creating more of a standard reference, uh, like a format for a reference from this commission to an appellate court. It seems that, um, and as somebody who painstakingly follows all of the references and all of the work by the appellate courts, it seems like we have to reinvent the reference and the context for these reviews because they're right now it's an extraordinary event. Um, you know, it may be less extraordinary in the future. Do, do we need to kind of brush up maybe? Yeah. Just to, do, do we need to all go back to school a little bit and, and sort of get a common understanding of how these things should be handled? Well, I think I think we will necessarily have to. Uh, I think we'll necessarily have to go back to school. Uh, first of all, because we we're changing, we're proposing to change the legal standard in this bill uh, f from you know likely miscarriage of justice to a potential miscarriage of justice. We have the language may, uh, and and then with an additional element of of. Uh, public interest which is which is uh, in other jurisdictions that we've seen that have successfully employed models uh so in the uk australia new zealand and we have a, a bit of a hybrid standard but we've lowered that standard it's something that that justices Laforme and trare asked us to do and we think that was a good thing to do so to some extent that puts us all back in school um and in terms of how we look at the uh the way in which this law operates but it's also true that there will be more cases. There necessarily have to be more cases. Uh, th that's one of the reasons why we're doing it. And so there will become, I believe, a greater sense of ease or comfort with the fact that this 
commission will be able to refer cases back, not just to the court of appeal, but they could also the current power. They'll have all the current powers that I have, um, and which I'm giving up. Uh, they can also refer it back to a trial court for a, a, a new hearing, um, which again, in in some cases, is an option. I have to admit, when I'm looking at it, I, I'm trying to look at them in the most effective lens for the the person who who is uh, claiming the wrongful conviction. Uh, so I I will choose the either route depending on on what I feel will be more expeditious, uh, in particular for the uh, for the person bringing forth the uh, the, the claim. Um, the commission will develop its own rules of thumb, its own standards, and for for its referrals. And the courts will hopefully get used to the fact that these that this independent body, with its own uh, with its own mandate and a, and a great deal of credibility, that it will that it will begin to develop over time, uh, will be sending cases back, and it will become part of the new normal. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who who do advocacy in this area that'll be uh, very supportive of what you're describing. I mean, to a certain extent, right now, and and I don't think that this this new commission and the new process and the new standards will change that. But you know, there is um, there is a note of finality to this process when it's referred, uh, uh, you know, to an appellate court. There is no there is no process for for reviewing that decision, and I think that at least in a couple of instances, you know, uh, Innocence Canada would point out that you know they don't believe everybody's been on the on the same page, and and maybe not even the appellate courts haven't even grasped the fact that this is it, this is the last stage of deliberation. Nobody is going to review this decision. Um, the stakes are very high in this. Uh, e- even with the improvements you're making, the stakes remain high, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Uh, particularly for the people who who uh, have been wrongfully convicted, sitting in sitting in, in incarceration somewhere. I mean, it, of course, the stakes are high, but we need we need to have a better system, precisely, uh, so that uh, we can deal with these cases more effectively, more quickly, and more cheaply uh, in a way that that makes them accessible, makes the process accessible. Um, that, that's another thing we haven't touched on yet, but you know, all the cases that come up in front of me tend to be uh, men convicted of homicide. But if you look at incarceration, the, the, the faces of incar- incarceration across Canada, that's not it. There are, there are plenty of women. There are plenty of, of, of Indigenous peoples. There are a majority of Indigenous people, sadly, tragically, or a great plurality, as well as, as, well as uh, people of color, uh, Black Canadians, other, other racialized Canadians. And they're being lost here. It's something that Justices uh, Laforme and Westmoreland Traoré pointed out, and they they took specific care to include uh, those voices in their deliberations. But it just stands as a matter of logic that if the only cases that get to me represent only one tiny swath of the of the population, one kind of case, that we're missing something somewhere else, and we need we need better data. I know that, but we also need a better system that allows for other people to challenge uh, the, the convictions that, that have been uh, mistakenly entered or, or the processes that have gone awry that have led to those convictions. It's, um, uh, I think the, um, the great hope of the people that recommended this commission is that it would uh, finally in Canada kind of get more, as you say, to, to capturing the magnitude 
of the problem. Of course, the magnitude of the problem is also one of the reasons why I think people fear this commission is because they, they quite frankly, it's not clear to them yet where the commission will draw its lines. Um, in the United Kingdom, they were initially approached by people with fairly small and mundane legal issues uh, that were no doubt important to them. Um, is there, there's still a lot of parameters that need to be worked out on this commission and, and what cases, like, will it give equal time and effort to the cases of people who are no longer incarcerated as those who are still incarcerated? Um, like, how, how do we figure out all that? Well, I think the short answer is we're going to let the commission figure a lot of that out on its own uh, to work out their own methodologies and, and, and their priorities. Certainly the, the, the walking orders I would give them, or the mar marching orders is probably the wrong term, it's too strong, but the walking orders that I would give them is that we do want them to look at these other cases. They've had a, they've had a, a, a massive negative impact on the lives of people. It's not it's not a conviction for homicide, but it is a conviction that incarcerates you for five or six years and on something else that has completely disrupted and possibly even destroyed a life, a relationship, a job, uh, uh, all of that. And so that's important too. And we need we need to be able to look at those. One of the positive examples, as you've pointed out, from the UK, uh, Scotland, is that is that the commissions have been able to look at these other cases. Uh, and they have been able to, the, the numbers actually go up, particularly at the outset, then they stabilize later, which is, I suppose, what we would expect here. But those those cases are important too. It's not just the it's not just the major homicide. Obviously, the major homicide cases are are always going to be a priority. But it's not simply those cases that we need to review. It's other cases. And and again, with technology changing the way it does, it often is the case that there is an exonerating technology that comes into existence five or six or seven or ten years after the the conviction. And we need to be able to to look at those kinds of changes and apply them as quickly as possible. So um, it's just as we sort of wrap up our, our conversation, uh, it would be correct for me if I was paying attention, I think I have been paying attention, that um, there, your hope is uh, to see the, uh, the bill become law uh, by the end of the current session, uh, which wraps up sometime in June. And then following that, that you're hopeful that there could be some work done to provide some resources to get the commission at least up and running and in the planning and development stage uh, shortly after that, if everything were to go, you know, well. You're correct on all counts. Okay. Well, it's, yeah, you can imagine how many times I hear that. I, not very often. Um, uh, Minister, I want to thank you and your people for being so responsive and making time to talk about this. Uh, you know, it, it, it isn't uh, often the biggest story in the country, uh, but it is uh, actually a huge story to those people that have been touched by this, you know, the narratives of wrongful conviction. So, um, we are hopeful as well that you are successful in your mission here. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate your work over the years uh, and the work of other of other journalists of Innocence Canada, uh, uh, of all the, the lawyers and law students and others who have who have and families who have not forgotten uh, that 
uh, mistakes can happen. And so uh, let's let's get this done. I'm going to keep pushing as as uh, as hard and as long as I can until this gets done. You have my word there, and uh, I hope too that we will uh, come back in 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 hopefully not too long a period of time and and uh, do a victory lap. Well, I'll I'll uh, I'll use this as an opportunity to tell your people that I'm I'm booking an interview for July. Uh, just kind okay. of a progress report, <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll see where we are there. The Honorable David Lametti is the Minister of Justice for Canada and the Attorney General. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you, Dan. We want to welcome to the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast uh, my colleague from uh, Robson Hall uh, Faculty of Law at the University of Manitoba, David Asper. Well-known throughout Winnipeg, uh, he's been the chair of the Winnipeg Police Board, uh, chair of the Manitoba Police Commission, and a uh, lawyer, well-known business person throughout the province, and particularly uh, worked on David Milgard's legal team uh, that overturned his wrongful conviction. Uh, welcome to the uh, podcast, uh, David. Thanks, it's great to be here. Uh, I want to start off by talking about uh, your work on wrongful com- convictions, and Particularly your work with, uh, we all know that the uh, justice system in Manitoba has not been kind to Indigenous peoples. Uh, My father, of course, headed up the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry back in uh, 1988 and and the hundreds of recommendations that came out of there. uh, In large part because of the wrongful convictions or the justice system that's pitted against Indigenous peoples. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about your experience uh, as a lawyer in Manitoba, and then also your work with wrongful convictions. I grew up as a young lawyer standing in line behind your father in line in the courtrooms because he was senior to me. So I got to watch him and uh, he was a, an incredible mentor before he went to the bench and served as a judge. Uh, and I, um, I enjoyed and I took God's strength from watching the way he would speak truth to power in the courtroom. And um, I have a lot of uh, respect uh, for for your dad. Uh, I do want to start, I mean, we're recording this on March 16th, 2023, and news breaks this morning that um, two members of the Edmonton Police Service were shot and killed. And uh, uh, it's just a tremendous reminder of the um the risk and the importance of law enforcement in our communities and the risk that these people take um it has special um meaning i guess for me even in the context of my own lived experience that led into wrongful convictions because i wasn't uh i wasn't practicing criminal law and i made a career choice to change my my career path into criminal law and the day i started uh, March 6, 1986, two members of the RCMP were gunned down. One was killed, Corporal Rob Thomas, in Powerview, Manitoba. Uh, Rob had grown up as a special constable with Peguis, uh First Nation Policing, and uh, then graduated into the RCMP. And I think he's buried at Peguis. And so when we talk about wrongful convictions, and I know we'll, we'll do that, I think it's important to keep... Um, you know, the big picture in mind that there are human beings and there's huge risk in the system. And I encountered that literally on my first day of work as a criminal defense lawyer. And I think it's appropriate today when we're recording to acknowledge and send condolences to the the families of the Edmonton officers, the slain Edmonton officers, and to honor and respect the memory of 
Corporal Rob Thomas, uh, one of Manitoba's own who was killed in the line of duty. Um, and so that was March 6th, 1986. And then what, what, a, what a week. Um, that was my day one. And my day three was to meet Joyce Milgard uh, and become involved with, you know, what would become one of Canada's most notorious wrongful conviction cases and and led to a new law which actually bears the name of Joyce and David Milgard. So life is life is pretty crazy sometimes. And it's also, I mean, I think it would be impossible in Manitoba to to not deal with these issues, particularly in in relation to the uh, rampant challenges that the justice system has placed uh, over the past and the issue of race and the issue of uh, well, funding as well, and and the we can't forget too that uh, while we do recognize the uh, the incredible work that police officers do, there's also a number of issues within the system that involve uh, police officers, lawyers, uh, judges that oftentimes create um, these r- systems in which the wrong people get both accused, uh, get positioned in particular ways and then maybe can't always defend themselves uh, appropriately and then end up in jail for long periods of time. And David Milgard certainly that falls into that category. Well, one, one of the other things that, uh, and one of the lifelong experiences that, that sticks with me to this day was that as I grew into my practice in criminal law, I spent a ton of time on circuit, in circuit courts in rural Manitoba and on reserve. Um, in Barrens River and Pangasi and Bloodvein and Little Grand Rapids and in the Interlake and Hollow Water uh, and Fisher River and in all, all the way west of Weiwei. And um, I saw things in the system that uh, the new proposed legislation, and I, I participated in the consultation that led to the new legislation, but I saw what we call uh, pleas of convenience, which is the plea bargaining where um, people who might be innocent of a crime take a plea bargain and plead guilty because it's it's the lesser of two evils when they're trapped in the system. Um, and I could see this and I could see the wheel of the pressure of the system um, happening uh, in real time. And it was very troublesome and I'm, I'm very glad uh, that part of the underlying rationale and part of the information that was provided in the consultation that led to the new legislation allows for this new independent commission to look into uh, those kinds of situations, which, which, you know, not surprisingly mirror the disproportionate representation in the criminal justice system of racialized people, uh, first nations, indigenous uh, people of color, um, who get trapped in the system and and may may be sort of forced into uh, situations where they admit to things that they didn't do. Now, uh, just for people who may not be as familiar with the concept, uh, listeners who may not be as familiar with the concept, the pleas of convenience. So, uh, and David, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in at the very intake level of the justice system, it's not unusual to find someone accused of relatively mundane crimes. So these wouldn't be the high-profile violent crimes, but could be property crime, break and enter, even, you know, assault. What will happen is the individual will be charged with 
a whole broad array of things. I mean, there could be like a dozen different charges that the police lay uh, initially. And it's a lever. It's a, it's a, it's an, like it tips the scale because what it does is it forces defense lawyers to plea bargain and pick one charge out of the, the big array of things uh, plead to a lesser sentence than they might get if they if they go to trial with both Crown and defense realizing that, like, there's no way the justice system has the time to, to sort all this out. Is that sort of a fair description of how, how the pleas of convenience work? Partly. Um, <laughs> what you've described is what's sometimes known as overcharging. Yeah. Uh, so somebody breaks a window and they wind up charged with, uh, it, you know, what they did was actually a fairly minor offense in the criminal code, but they get charged with, for example, break, enter, and theft, uh, which has a potential life sentence uh, and is treated more seriously, and it may result in them, for example, being denied bail. Um, and so now they're in, in prison um, and uh, waiting for a trial, and the Crown Attorney comes along and says, will you plead to mischief, and let's make this thing go away. And if the person didn't do it, um, you know, they might say, okay, just just because that'll get me out of prison and get this over with, I'll, okay, let's do that. So that's one scenario. Um, the other scenario is, is, again, sort of related, uh, which is when people are, in fact, charged with very serious crimes like homicides. Mm-hmm. And they're facing, for, for example, second-degree murder charges. Um, and... Uh, and potential life imprisonment if they're convicted, and potentially a long period in pretrial detention. Um, again, they look at the sort of the utilitarian perspective, which is is a plea to manslaughter better if that's on the table. Um, and even though manslaughter has a life uh, sentence potentially, it doesn't have a mandatory minimum, and so. Um, uh, there's there's a couple of variations of how pleas of convenience might work. And um, um, I mean, I've seen it. As I say, mm-hmm. I've seen it firsthand. Uh, it's, it's a difficult situation for the defense lawyer because you have to look at the accused and you have to say, okay, if you're pleading guilty, I can't plead guilty on your behalf or speak on your behalf unless you're admitting to yeah. all the things that are required um to to uphold a conviction yeah so so clients clients you know who are separated from their community separated from their families um will just look at you and say yeah i did it yeah and and then and then you you go ahead so the the, you've had the uh uh, the benefit of listening to some of uh, our interview with minister lametti and i i was able to bring him you know to a place to talk about some of the real systemic and cultural issues in the justice system that lead to wrongful convictions. Um, you know, a two-part question. Number one is, do you accept what appears to be at face value a pretty deep personal commitment to this issue? I mean, it's politically, it's not a winner, right? Like this is, there's never been a lot of um, political uh, appetite to engage on, on the issue of wrongful convictions. Um, Minister Lametti seems to be, you know, he's, he's staking part of his, his mandate as, uh, as Justice Minister to this issue. And secondly, is this, is this the right point, uh, an independent commission, to change those systemic and cultural issues? Or do we have more work to do beyond that? 
I think that uh, I think that Mr. Lametti is a hero. Um, I honestly, um, you know, you know full well that uh, it's been 30 years since the Milgard case uh, was resolved uh, or more. I can't even remember how many years ago it was. Um, and uh, as he said in his interview, there's been multiple commissions of inquiry and, and no minister. Um, I guess Erwin Kotler got close, but uh, no minister has had the resolve and the wherewithal to actually see this through. And and so that's, and so, you know, I give him immense credit for doing that. And he understands this, not at a political level. It's clear that he understands it at an intellectual, a cerebral policy and a systemic level. And I think that's what enabled him to be able to do what he felt was the right thing. Um, and, and just in that vein, it, there, there was this, and he refers to the uh, consultation that had occurred um, about a year before the actual legislation um, was presented. And I participated in that uh, consultation. And there was interesting discussion about the scope of what an independent commission might seek t- to do. Uh, so in its simplest, um, most stripped down version, you look at the most serious crimes, homicides, where people are incarcerated and and try to deal with those cases. Um, but the consultation went way, way further uh, to try to cover way broader ground, including um, deeper systemic issues, including um, you know the the race based uh, aspects of where the system has. Um, has had a disproportionately bad impact uh and uh and and they and to his credit um they they, he's come up with um uh, a proposal that is really the full meal deal i think it's very ambitious we saw the experience in the uk when they created their independent commission that it was initially overwhelmed and the minister refers to that he said you know i think uh, he referred to the fact that there were only five cases that crossed his desk and everybody in the system knows that there has to be way more than what is actually coming to light. And so I, I do worry a little bit that that there might be um, a lot of traffic that gets directed toward that commission. Uh, but I guess that's a good thing. And um, if, if that happens, then I, I guess it's better to be trying to react to that than continue to keep it suppressed. Um, so I, I, uh, as I say, I, there have been a lot of ministers of justice that, uh, all advocates for an independent commission have, uh, have encountered along the way. And, uh, I'm just, uh, extremely grateful that this minister, um, finally did it. You know, there are so many systemic issues. Um, I mean, certainly the, uh, the way even the existing limited system tends to, um, weed out uh claimants of uh of indigenous uh or you know non-white racialized groups uh they just they they just don't get an opportunity uh to participate even in the current system but you know i also spent quite a bit of time talking to him about um you know the cultural problem in the pro with the provincial crown prosecution services who treat these applications 
as if they are, you know, that it's a, a like a knife fight to the death. You know, like it's they they do not become a participant in seeking justice. They become the adversary uh, of the applicant. And, um, you know, you and I have talked about that a lot over the years. Is, is an independent commission, do you, do you think that's the right place to start to address those issues? It's a great question. I, I, I can't give a definitive answer on that. Uh, I do know, though, that the independent commission is going to have full powers of inquiry, including compelability of witnesses and disclosure of documents. So I think that um, with those teeth uh, and with the stature of uh, being a national institution and with proper investigative resources, I think it's the end of the line of the uh, political gamesmanship in these kinds of cases, uh, number one, just because, just because of the powers conferred on the new independent commission. But the second thing uh, that, that I do hope uh, does start to change the culture is that a lot of reasons why wrongful convictions happen are not intentional. Um, some of the race issues, for example, are, uh, come from unconscious bias. Uh, and a, a friend of mine actually is doing some really interesting work on a case, a very famous criminal law case from Ontario about uh, unconscious bias and the sort of the what he, what we call the ossification of facts in a case where they get ossified like a fossil in the way that a predominantly white court of appeal describes what it sees as the facts uh, and how the reality might be quite different and and that's I think unconscious bias um, and hopefully uh, the commission will start to, I guess depoliticize or de undemonize uh, that aspect. Um, you know, there's there's many other aspects to why wrongful convictions happen that get people on their heels and get defensive. Uh, police don't like uh, to be accused of of you know participating in a wrongful conviction, and yet at the same time, I've never met a police officer who wants to get the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And yet, they in, once they get into tunnel vision, which is a psychological trick sort of that happens, it's extremely hard to, to break that spell. And it becomes even harder when there's a demonization of them for having gone down that rabbit hole. And so maybe this commission can undemonize that. Um, maybe when people... Uh, people give false confessions. Um, to the average person, a false confession is unfathomable uh, about how it, you know, how could you possibly admit to something that you didn't do? And yet we know what happens. Yeah. Uh, and quite often, whoever gets the confession becomes demonized. Um, and, um, and so I do think that I do think that over time, the commission can change the culture. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know very well what happened in the Milgard case is we got into this pitched battle mm-hmm. that was completely unnecessary if, um, if the Department of Justice, if there had been some willing partner to uncover when we first raised the questions about the, the Milgard case, 
um, in an independent way, if somebody had actually looked into it, uh, none of the demonization and the fight that had to happen would have been necessary. So I, 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 I maybe I'm naive. I was very naive thinking that the Department of Justice was going to link arms with us in the Milgard case and march off to achieve justice. Uh, but I, I do think that this is uh, a new opportunity, and I, I do hope it changes the culture. I, I 100% agree that when people's unconscious bias are pointed out, not just in policing, but I think it happens almost everywhere, that when you point out someone's unconscious bias, they'll double down often uh, versus admitting or recognizing. or and, and this is often where cultural awareness initiatives really fall apart because just bringing someone's attention to racism uh, doesn't actually deal with racism. And the calls to action uh, oftentimes say we need to be giving more training, more... Uh, but one of the things that the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry did is really fundamental change, like f uh, asking for very substantive change within the system itself, that the system, uh, the idea of punitiveness in the justice system, the idea of uh, how do we railroad people through the system, especially with public defenders, uh, oftentimes is the reason for all of this racism within the justice system. And so um, if there's one thing that you could change or one thing you could employ today uh, what would it be in the justice system to be able to, whether it be at any level, I mean, I work with judges, I'm on a board that assists uh, Minister, um, uh, Justice Joel uh, with this uh, Court of King's Bench here in Manitoba. Um, what is one thing that you could see at any level uh, to be able to employ and uh, engage the issue of wrongful conviction? I was uh, I was going to give an address to the uh, in David's honor to the National Judicial Institute, uh, which was having a, a session on wrongful convictions, and unfortunately I got COVID and I, I I couldn't even collect my thoughts, so I wasn't able to do it. But what I was going to say to them, and I thought really carefully about this because this is a very big thought, is that to you know again to your point the the system the construct of the system is adversarial the the whole idea is that the police investigate the prosecutors prosecute and they do their job and the defense lawyers defend and the judge and the juries do their job and everybody's got sort of a lane and when you set it all in motion and you create the tension of the adversarial system it produces um, an acceptable democratic result, a legitimate result. And yet we know that, you know, that that's not always the case. Uh, and it's not always the case, even in cases where there's an, uh, an appropriate conviction. Um, um, and so the, what, the point I was going to try to make was I, I just was going to wonder out loud whether we should start thinking about a more inquisitorial um, system uh, I mean, we can talk about com more community-level justice systems, and we can talk about less formalistic, less sort of colonial systems. And and I actually like the idea of community courts, and um, they're being used, uh, you know, in various places across the country with varying degrees of success. But I think the core of it is, um, in the Milgard case, for example, if the judge when you have a jury trial, the judge really tries to stay out of the questioning and really stay out of the way of the job of the jury. Um, and, you know, that's probably appropriate. But in the Milgard case, for example, if the judge had intervened and started asking questions about the physical possibility of the facts that were being laid out, um, 
things that we were able to show demonstrably after the conviction and after the appeals were factually not possible then this might this whole thing might have been avoided and so um i think that um the change that i would like to see is a is a a, a more inquisitorial and active role for judges in preserving and overseeing the integrity of the criminal justice process in real time and not solely relying on you know what happens in a trial and then the appeal mechanisms and then eventually um, potentially uh, an application to a minister of justice let's try to deal with these things as they're happening mm-hmm. to avoid people uh, you know, unnecessarily spending time in jail you know it's uh it, it i knew this was gonna we were gonna reach a point where we had to wrap up the interview and i was gonna be incredibly frustrated because we haven't really had a chance to tell all the glorious stories that you and i uh share from the uh, the Milgard years although i do want to say i still remember the video um that you guys shot where you walked the route that the police in saskatoon said the murderer had traveled and showed that the the timing that they had used at trial wasn't possible so and i i just remember of all the stuff you gave me initially on our first meeting that that is you know uh sometimes the the truth of these cases is very simple to see but very very hard to accept um you it's, know it's 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 dan it's interesting because david and by the way it's a podcast can't you just go on forever <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah yeah um, yeah we could uh um, but you know the the audience no, numbers it, drop off significantly <laughs> right about now so <laughs> well i could well I'll, I'll sing if you want or keep trying to no i tried that it didn't work um, so <laughs> no uh, what i was going to say was that you know almost from the very beginning david kept you know i was looking at the transcripts and digesting all the facts he kept saying they can't put me in that picture they can't put me in that picture and i did not understand mm-hmm. exactly what he meant until uh, his sister, Susan and uh, Maureen, and then Joyce translated and said, go walk it. So I took my little uh, my little camcorder at the time. Um, and, and yeah, as you say, um, the picture painted at trial was as though it was a static snapshot um, of a series of facts. And it did not account for the fact that people were in motion. The victim was going in motion from her house to a bus stop. Um, Other witnesses were going from east to west. People were moving. And when you set it all in motion, um, you know, uh, you know, the victim was at her destination before before Milgard and his friends allegedly, because who knows whether they they were even in the area, um, were where the Crown said they were, which gave him the opportunity to commit the crime. And uh, so, yeah, and and what I like about the new commission is that it 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 might be that you can do something like that and go to the commission, the new commission, and say we don't know and don't have access to all the stuff that underlies this, but here's a set of facts that don't work. And 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 again, it's really important. There's an important nuance, and James Lockyer, you know, really underscores this. The burden or the threshold has changed. The current threshold is you have to show that there likely was a miscarriage of justice. In the new world, um, it's that there may be 
uh, a miscarriage of justice, which lowers that threshold and adds a second part, which is that or that having another look at the case might be in the public interest, which is, you know, which is very discretionary. So, again, I I think that uh, the federal government and Minister Lamenti have done an amazing job. And I um, I think that I wish we had the I wish we had this regime in 1986 or I wish that uh, I w- you know, I wish that David Nogard had never been convicted. Yeah. Uh, just as a final thought, and just so people understand how steep the hill is, um, in the Milgard case, they they caught the murderer, they put his DNA in the body of the, uh, of the uh, victim, and yet today you and I could pick up the phone and reach people who were still working within Saskatchewan Justice that think he's guilty. So that if people want to know how steep the hill is, uh, that's how steep the hill is. David, uh, really appreciate you joining us on this topic. And uh, I know you've done as much as anybody to keep the fires burning on this, uh, working closely with the mill guards. And I'm sure you'll join me in saying that, you know, it, 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 the saddest point of all is that neither Joyce nor David were around to see uh, Minister Lametti's, um legislation come forward. But we, we know uh, they would be very happy about what's happening. Well, I reflected on this. Uh, David and I were supposed to get uh, honorary Doctor of Law degrees last year at Convocation at the University of Manitoba, and I accepted his posthumously. And I reflected on this, and uh, not all stories have happy endings. Um, and people die, people pass away, some early, some live long, rich lives. Um, and the question isn't whether you lived, but whether you lived with meaning. And uh, I take great comfort. And I know that in the spirit world, uh, both David and Joyce know that um, whatever travails happen in their lives uh, with the announcement of the new legislation, their lives had meaning. And that's the most important thing. Miigwech for your time and uh, really appreciate uh, talking about something that, you know, it was 31 years ago. Uh, and it feels so close. And so uh, thanks for bringing that attention to David and to Joyce. So miigwech. So that's another episode of Negon and the Lone Ranger and uh, your return episode. Yep, I'm back and I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I've set up a sleeping bag on the floor here in the studio. I'm just going to, I'm going to hold down my place. so, yeah. I'm not sure how Adam would feel about that. But. Yeah, no, so long as you don't touch my sleeping bag, then yeah, that's, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, Adam never leaves either. Uh, big Speaking of uh, our wonderful producer, Adam, uh, here at the CJNU studio, uh, big miigwech and thanks to everybody here for your hard work. And uh, also big thanks to all of our colleagues at the Winnipeg Free Press for the hard work that they do, particularly Wendy Swatsky, who uploads it makes us sound so great and look so great on the website and uh editor paul samin at the uh, free press for all of his support and a huge thanks to uh of course all of our listeners Uh, i don't think we say enough thanks to all of you for supporting us on this journey Uh, we've uh we've really been impressed and, and surprised at times but I think very happily surprised at the amount of feedback that we get on the podcast. A goodly number appear to be listening. So yeah. yeah. Send us uh, tweets. Uh, you can catch us on Twitter. Big Miigwech for joining us and uh, we'll see you down the trail. Adios. Adios.